Man, we, are, uh, we got some good stuff going today. We are starting a brand new teaching series called Wilderness Men. As we get into it, I want to introduce you to somebody. Have you ever heard of a man named John Muir? I got a picture of him here. Check this dude out. This guy is like is one of my heroes. This guy, like, first of all, I have total beard envy from this guy. He is outside growing a beard, Grizzly Adams style. Let me tell you who John Muir, anybody know who he is? Just curious. Yeah, good, you're good people. Uh, John Muir, he's considered like the father of our national park system uh, in America. So if you've ever been to um, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park or, or any of the great, you know, uh, parks around our nation, he, he was instrumental in being outside and recognizing the great natural resources we have as a continent and saying, well, we gotta preserve this. We can't just build skyscrapers everywhere. We gotta leave this the way it is so that for generations, people can come and, and, and be in it. One of his biggest passions was connecting people with the great outdoors. Uh, I love being outside. I love spending time uh, in nature. Uh, I actually wore my, my flannel today in, in respect for being outside. And so, uh, anybody like being outside? Just spending some time in nature? Yeah, man, we live at the beach. That's probably why many of you moved here. It might be something that you discovered as, as you grew up here. You're like, this is great. We have the ocean. Uh, yesterday, all day long, I was up near White Oak, North Carolina, uh, at Camp Bowers, which is a Boy Scout reservation. I was on this lake with a bunch of Boy Scouts, and we were uh, doing outdoorsman craft stuff. I actually built like a 15-tall teepee yesterday, which is Totally practical. Everyone needs one. Um, but for a project we were working on, I love being outside. I love smelling like a campfire. I love cooking a hot dog on a stick. Being outside. Let me tell you something John Muir said. This is, this is huge. He said, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, we don't do that here often, but I'll do it right there. He said that wilderness is necessity. That's John Muir on our national parks. There's just something about the untamed wild that just helps us out. It is something that we have seen throughout different parts of our society. Medicine has shown us this. Not only do we get like the vast majority of our medication, if it's healthy for you, it should come from the great outdoors. But what's crazy is that literally a, a, a prescription that doctors have given for generations have been to some people you just need to spend more time outside, right? You need to go, you need to be in the sun, you need to go where the climate is nice or whatever. You need to just get outside because it is healing to us. Uh, we learn it as parents. I wondered, like, why was my mom, as I was growing up, I have a younger brother, she was constantly just like, she would get to a point where she'd just go, you boys need to go outside. <laughs> and I was like, what is so good about outside? But now I have two kids of my own, I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys need to get outside. <laughs> it's good. You just got to get outside. You can run off some steam. You can just be out where God intended us to spend time and connect with him. Uh, people are drawn to the wild. We're drawn to nature. We love nature stories. Many of our fairy tales and the big epic stories that we love to like just lean into, they take place in forests and on mountains and on the sea because it's just something about it that seems to connect with our soul. I think there's a reason because the master of the wilderness is the creator of the universe. And he's also the lover of our souls. This is God. And he said, I gave you this. I actually gave you this to subdue and rule over. That's what God gave us nature for. And I gave it to you as a place where you can learn about me. From the very beginnings of time and in the biblical history that we have, and as you even see, maybe in your own life you've seen this, God has used nature, the wild, the wilderness to teach us, sometimes to discipline us, 
and most importantly, to teach us about him. So we're, we're embarking on this four-week journey uh, series called Wilderness Men. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at four different characters from biblical history that spent a ton of time outside. And what's cool is in their time in the wilderness, God taught them something, whether it was through their actions or through something that God deliberately just showed them. Today, we're going to be jumping into a guy named Esau. He's one of uh, kind of almost like a villain of the Old Testament, but there's some great lessons we can learn about him. In the next few weeks, we're going to be going into Samson. If you're an overachiever and you want to do some homework and get ahead, this is your, this is your chance to shine Samson, we're going to be getting into Elijah, and we're going to close up on Jesus, all of these guys who have unique things to teach us uh, about uh, our legacy, about the pursuit of God, about uh, fulfillment and satisfaction, and ultimately about victory. These are kind of the lessons we're going to be going through. And so I hope that if you're just here for the first time today, or maybe it's been a while and you've checked back in the church, why don't you make a plan to be here for all, week, all four weeks? It's going to be a really cool thing. As the weather is improving, and we are quickly forgetting that it was winter last week, and it was like 85 degrees yesterday, and you're going to be outside more, I think the things we can learn over the next month are going to translate into your own life and how you can be in the moment with God wherever you are in nature, or might I encourage you to get outside some more. So every week, we love to look to the Bible for answers to life's most important questions. If you've got a Bible with you today, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Uh, We'll be in chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible today, it's fine. I'll have the words, the the scripture up behind me on the screen. Uh, But we also have free Bibles in the lobby that you can grab on your way out. There's a table there. Feel free to please take a Bible. We want everyone to have a good, readable version of the Bible. But flip over to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to learn a little bit about background on today's wilderness man. His name is Esau. So while you flip there, Esau was uh, the oldest of a set of twins. Anybody know what his twin brother's name was? Good job. Jacob. Jacob and Esau, they kind of go hand in hand when you say, if you heard of uh, like Jacob's Ladder, that little game you play with strings, like that was named after him. Uh, He did better things than that, but that's just how people know his name sometimes. Um, Eventually, Jacob has his name changed to, does anybody know? Good job. You guys are on it. His name is changed to Israel. So when you hear about the Israelites, uh, the Israelite people, which is the Jewish nation, it's the people that the whole Old Testament was written about. And two, uh, they were his descendants, Jacob. This is Esau's twin brother. Uh, Esau, he has offspring too. And his nation, the people that come from his life, uh, his, his family tree, they're become known as the Edomites. And so you see the Israelites and the Edomites. And because of the little conflict that we have here in this story today, actually for generations, that conflict kind of continues. Jacob and Esau play a huge role in the biblical narrative. Actually, all the way leading up to even Jesus, which is what uh, the church is about, is the Jesus era. Jacob and Esau, they had a a famous granddaddy. His name was Abraham. God comes to Abraham and tells him, I want to bless the entire world through your family line. All nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. What's crazy is uh, Abraham didn't have any children at the time. And God's like, we're going to fix that too. It was was a cool story. Uh, And so the whole nation of Israel comes out of this, this line of Abraham, his son Isaac, and, and his wife Rebekah. So I got Isaac and Rebekah, and then we've got Jacob and Esau. And so they play a big role in the biblical narrative as a whole, which brings us to Esau. Okay, so when Esau was born, he came out and they said he looked red and hairy. Um, kind of gross. And, um, and so they named him Esau because the word in their language that sounds kind of like Harry, it's kind of like the word Esau. So that's kind of how they named their kids. It's real nice of them. Thanks, mom. You know, um, 
Hey, Harry, come here. Um, I guess we named people Harry too, so I don't know what that says about them, what they looked like when they were born. Uh, he had a brother named Jacob. Believe it or not, Jacob's name came from something he was doing when he was born too. It was said that Jacob was kind of holding on to his brother's heel when he was born. They were twins, so that must have been kind of cool and cute, little hand come out and whatever. Uh, they, they, the word Jacob kind of sand, sounds like the word for, for heel or heel, heel grasper. And so this is how they named their kids. We spent months trying to pick the perfect names for our kids, like you're going through name books and talking to relatives. They're like, let's just wait and see what happens. That one's Harry. That one's holding on to his heel. Done. <laughs> uh, if we did it, my kids would be named like uh, Nervous Turtle and Purple Alien. That would be the names of my kids. And they would hate me for it. So like we didn't name our kids that way. Um, maybe you did. I don't know. But so we... <laughs> We are, in, uh, we are in Genesis chapter 25, and this is Esau's story, and we kind of walk into who he is. So uh, chapter 25, verse 27. Let's jump into our text for today. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 27. So the boys grew up. This is Jacob and Esau. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Some might say a wilderness man. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac who, that's their, their dad, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see this immediate family tension? One is more outdoorsy, Jacob's kind of a stay-home mama's boy, and like, that's what many very professional biblical scholars call him, mama's boy. Um, and Esau becomes a skilled hunter, and his dad likes, I guess, beef jerky, and so they, they like really hit it off. And so that's where we start off, but we keep on uh, reading through the text in verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came home from the open country, and he was famished. And he said to his brother Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, hmm, well, hold on. First, sell me your birthright. It's an expensive bowl of soup. Verse 32, Esau says, look. I'm about to die. You ever felt that way? Don't go to the grocery store to do your grocery shopping when you feel this way. He says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, okay, swear to me first then. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Must have been some good lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and then he got up and he left. So... I imagine this last sentence must have taken place like the next day, okay? So Esau despised his birthright. He was upset. Man, on the surface, this story is crazy. I, I've got a younger brother, okay? And he cooks some good food. And I don't care how good his lentil stew is. Like, he doesn't get my right as the firstborn son. Like, that's, that's, like, that's all I can keep with me. I, you can't have that. Um, I just don't see me trading, trading like my inheritance for some soup. Even further... This story isn't very relatable to me and you. We're Americans, we're in modern times. We don't do this process that they did with their kids because what in the world is a birthright? Do you have a birthright? Like you might be like, yeah, I got a birthright. No, you don't, you don't. We don't have birthrights. It's not a thing we do in our culture. Um, we'll talk about that in just a second. But either way, there's some weird sibling tension going on here and it's gonna continue for a long time. It's easy for us to focus on the birthright part of this story when we hear this, uh, and because and, that's the first thing. Like, wait, sold your birthright? That seems like a really big deal. Esau was stupid. Like, why would he do that? But what's interesting is we miss easily, unless you kind of go back and think about it, we miss another dysfunctional element of this family. I don't know if you called it. It seems like uh, we can learn something about Jacob. Okay, we think about, man, Esau, you were dumb. Jacob 
he's kind of a jerk. Like real quick, we want to blame Esau for making a bad decision, but Jake, your brother's been hunting all day. What, you couldn't like spare a bowl of soup? Like how good do you think your soup is? So we immediately have some character flaws within these people. That's one reason why I love our Bible, because if this was a fake book written just to persuade people of some certain thing, you wouldn't immediately build in all these character flaws into our main characters. But that's just something that we do. It's like, this is like really people. They just, they do bad things. It's a messed up story. In fact, their whole family line is pretty messed up. You should read through Genesis. It's crazy. What's worse is this. This isn't going to be the last time that Jacob tries to bamboozle his older brother. It's a pattern that's going to continue. So, okay, birthright. Let's talk about birthright. It was pretty important to this group of people. Like I said, we, we don't have anything much like it. We have something, you know, we have inheritance. But the birthright is even more than that. It was, it was a deep-seated, like, emotional, uh, like, personality thing. It took on who that person was. Uh, it, it only went to the firstborn of the family or to the person who received it. Like, it could be passed on in various ways. For example, if, if the firstborn passed away or something like that, that could happen. There were three major things, if, if not more, that came along with what's called a birthright. The first one is this. Uh, the person with the birthright got double the inheritance of anyone else. So there is definitely a monetary value to this thing. So if you have multiple siblings, in our culture, we might most typically split it fairly even, but it was just understood. If you're the oldest son, it was always a son, uh, you got double. What everybody else got, you got a double portion. Second thing, you became the family head. And so for you, you got to make very important decisions. Are we going to move uh, the herds today? Are we going to take on this new occupation as a family? Are we going to make an alliance with this other tribe over here? And so, yeah, the patriarch, the dad figure is doing that. But like right up in the, in the ruling council of the family, because remember, families are huge in these old times. Uh, the, the, the birthright guy got to make those decisions with dad. Third thing, this is the biggest thing, especially for our story. You receive a blessing from your father. And this blessing is a big deal. The father would sometimes spend years composing this blessing. Like in our inheritance, we're like, you know what? We're not going to live forever. Let's go see a lawyer and write up a will. They're like, no, he's sitting. He is like thinking over these words. What exactly is the blessing I want to give my son? May you prosper in the land. No, prosper is not the right word. And I mean, they would labor over this blessing. And the thing about it is they believed that once this blessing was pronounced to the firstborn son, it was law. Like there's no turning back on this thing. And so once a blessing was given, these guys had a really high value for the spoken word. These are uh, God's people. They, they are the people that are originally coming from Abraham and, and from their legacy, we get the book of Genesis. And what we learned that they know about God is that God created with word, let there be light. He didn't go get a light kit and like put it together like Plato. His word was power enough to cause, to come into existence something. And so that was the reverence they had for the spoken word. Even in the New Testament, Jesus is called the word of God that became flesh. So when someone spoke in an oath or like a promise, like we were real quick to be like, ah, my fingers were crossed. I made a promise, but my fingers were crossed or I didn't mean it or uh, we've got small print. No, if you said something, it meant something. And so that's gonna be huge in this story. Because they make this oath. I give you my birthright. No take backs. It's got to happen. That's birthright. Um, and so birthright, like we don't really have birthright idea, but we're fascinated with something that's pretty similar. And I want to compare it to something. It's kind of like our call word for today. In our world, the, the closest thing we have maybe might be legacy. If you had the birthright and people were going through the family tree generations later and they were naming your forefathers, you would name the guys with the birthright. And they would be the stories that you would tell. And in our culture, we have legacy. We want to know how men and women in the future are going to remember us. 
That's why we do things. That's why people write books. We don't need any more books, people. Yeah, we do. I got something else to say that hasn't been said. That's why we have plaques on everything and trophies and monuments because we want there to be a memory that we existed. That's why we name our kids after our favorite relatives or a favorite uh, celebrity, celebrity or an influential person in our life. We want that name to be remembered. We're constantly talking about how we're gonna make our mark on society or how this generation is gonna be remembered or, or what happened in the previous generation. We are actually fascinated with our legacy. More importantly, most of us want to know how will we, we will be remembered, our own legacy. What's gonna be passed on from me? And sometimes we might wait a little too late in life to even begin working on that. So legacy, I would say that is really close to this birthright idea. And the thing about legacy is, it's a little bit different from birthright, but maybe the same. We're not guaranteed that our legacy will be good. Like even if we try really hard. Sometimes one little mistake will ruin a whole legacy. When we look at some stories that we see through life, uh, man, we see what happens with, with Esau. And we see that his birthright is something he's not taken very seriously in the moment which means he's also not very concerned about his legacy, what he's gonna leave behind. And as we're gonna look in these stories of the next few weeks, we're gonna look at these people's lives. We're gonna say, what is the lesson we can learn from the wilderness? A lesson from the wild? What are some things we can take home? There's gonna be three today, and these are huge. These are things that might, I, I would encourage you, like if you are really thinking seriously about what is the mark I'm leaving on this world? What is the mark I'm leaving in my family? What is the example I'm setting for my kids, my spouse, my neighbors? Shoot, what am I doing to live for God? These are three things that will really stand out for you. And as we look at Esau's life, this is the first thing that we learned. It jumps out to me is this. If we're not careful, our appetite will define our legacy. If we're not careful, our appetite will define our legacy. At first glance, it might seem like Esau, like he was exhausted after this, this long camping trip and he comes home and, and, you know, he's been hunting. And I don't know if you're hunters, um, but, you know, hunting in our mind is kind of like this extracurricular thing. You jump in your, your Dodge 2500, get your buddies up at the lodge, you get stopped by the little mom and pop corner store and pick up some, you know, sunflower seeds and some beef jerky. And by the end of the day, you're like, whoo, that was a good day. Been up on the deer stand all day. This is a whole different style of living. You know this. This is like, like third world country. And, and, and these guys, he's gonna get a, a little pouch of provisions. He's hitting the land for as long as it takes. If you've ever been uh, fishing before and come home with no fish, you might get a small piece of what it might be like to be one of these type of hunters. And you're, it, it's all about like what is available and, and how is my skill level. And so um, he's coming, he's tired and he's exhausted and he sees that his brother's cooking soup. Now, it's easy for us to be like, oh man, he must have been really famished. I think he's blown out of proportion how hungry he was. Anybody ever been hangry? You're like, I'm so hungry. You need a Snickers, right? Like this is kind of where, this is kind of where Esau is. He's throwing a fit. What we learn about Esau's family, about Isaac, about Abraham, they weren't poor people. Like they had sheep, for example. Like he didn't have to go hunting just to survive. Like they had food. And so it wasn't that he was so hungry he was gonna die. It was that, man, you already made soup. Like, that's the closest thing he had to a microwave. I mean, he's not gonna have to go prepare any food. It's already made. And here's the thing that we learned about Esau. Uh, his life wasn't hanging in the balance over whether or not his brother gave him some food. It's that Esau had a problem that I think I have. And I think that maybe you have, and this is Esau's problem. He wanted what he wanted it. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Let me say that again, because I stumbled through it. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. I'm hungry now. I want some lentil soup right now. I'm not trying to make my own lentil soup. I'm not gonna get the can opener and open it up. I'm not gonna go ask mom, see if she's made something. I want it right now. If we're not careful, our appetite will define 
our legacy. And, and this is something that we're pretty bad about, even small ways. Like, did I eat a whole cake? Oh my goodness. Like I wanted a cake and then so I just ate a whole cake. We would do this kind of stuff in our life. We do it with our relationships. I need this. I need this. And we're not patient to think about the other person's needs. Married folks in the room, our physical relationships with our spouse are sometimes uh, all the time. It happens all the time. There's an imbalance of who wants what, when. Doesn't that cause stress? Doesn't that cause arguments and fights? Don't fight with your spouse over that because you want what you want when you want it. But that's part of what we do. Our appetite begins to define our legacy and it defines our relationships with people. And we do this with our hobbies, sports, or TV at the detriment of our health sometimes. We will eat and we will play and we will know that it's hurting our, one of the biggest, uh, it's been diagnosed as a psychological disorder recently. It's, I don't, can't remember what exactly what it's called, but it has to do with people who are addicted to gaming. You know, there's a name for it. But it's like, you're staying up till three, four o'clock in the morning every day. You can barely function at work. And you know it's not healthy for you, but you just can't stop. And it happens with all kinds of addictions. And we see it and we know what's happening, but you're like, man, this is my appetite. I need this now, now, now. And that's just a short list of things that we allow, allow to like steer us and guide us and decide what we do. I want what I want, when I want it, I want, I, I want it now. And in the moment, you know what we're willing to do? We are willing to sell our soul for a temporary pleasure. Have you been there? Man, God knows that I have. And you most often recognize it the next day. Esau despised his birthright. I don't even know if I'm like interpreting that sentence right, but that's, that's the way I understand it. The next day I'm like, What? What have I done? You ever had buyer's remorse? You walk out of Best Buy. I heard somebody call it, I think it was Aaron. He called it impulse buy. <laughs> you walk out, you're like, oh man, what is the return policy on this TV? Is it after the Super Bowl? <laughs> and you walk away and, and, and we do we compromise our morals for instant gratification. And you remember that feeling the next day. And our appetite will so often, most often, almost without fail, begin to define our legacy. When we find ourselves a slave to our appetite, it feels like we don't have another choice. In the moment, I gotta do this. And you find yourself as like a backseat driver in your own life. But let me tell you something, guys. This is something that's very clear in God's word. We always have another choice. There is always another choice. God will never give us something that we cannot stand up underneath. He is not gonna put us in a situation we just simply cannot make it. Sometimes it comes in the form of a friend who's offering to help or a friend that you just need to let them know that you're struggling. Most often it comes in the form of self-control and recognizing what is just not good for you. And all the time it comes in the form of God's grace who says, okay, you messed up. There's grace for that. I can forgive you for that. But will you, will you turn to me so that I can help you take the next steps? There's always another choice. When we... When we are ruled by our appetite, we exchange our future legacy for present gratification, and that hurts us. But we don't have to continue in that. Can we stop? Why don't we make a solemn oath like Jacob and Esau? I'm gonna do my best to stop. Let your words have power. And let's begin to take control of the appetite so that God can show us a legacy. If we're not careful, our appetite will define our legacy. Um, okay, so that's the first little lesson. The second lesson that we can, we can read to before we get into a little bit more scripture for good or bad, our legacy will outlive us. 
that's what a legacy is. It's not what you have now. It's what you'll have later. Uh, there's this thing I've heard called the asterisks in the Hall of Fame. It's when someone's a really, really, really good player, but then something happened. And so even though they had all these records, everyone's just going to remember them for something else. You might remember uh, some of the, the great names of the home run uh, legacy in the late 90s, Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. And it's like, man, these guys are heroes. Oh, they're doing drugs. Mm, not sure if it counts. Remember Lance Armstrong rocking it. But a little star next to his name. We're not sure if it counted. Recently, Bill Cosby. There was a time where Bill Cosby's face was on every TV. He was selling Jello by the gallon. And we're like, you know what? That's what family should look like. He Cliff Huskable. <laughs> oh, my family would be like that. And recently he's been convicted of just so many heinous immoral, immoral crimes. And, and you know what? His legacy is just gone. Have you seen the Cosbys on TV recently? No, everyone's just said, no, we're done with him. So even the really good things he did to empower uh, children and to help in the black community to show a, a positive face of a black t family on television that wasn't happening anywhere else and the ways that he calmed our hearts with humor and all these wonderful things, what is his legacy gonna be? If, for good or for bad, our legacy will outlive us. Um, I don't wanna say on the bad side though because you look at other people uh, Remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? You can make a difference with silly songs and a cardigan. <laughs> and just the other day, I watched an episode or two with my kids in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's great. It's 2018, and my kids were like, that's pretty good. <laughs> and there's a new show called Daniel Tiger. Y'all seen Daniel Tiger? I don't watch that show. It ain't a real thing. <laughs> uh, but it's the new version. It's, you're a legacy while I live. I, Benjamin Franklin wrote this, and, and I like it. Uh, he said... If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. <laughs> do something with your life. Leave a legacy. So I'm sure that Esau would love a do-over because when we look at the Jacob and Esau duo, we're like, oh, Jacob, he was the good brother. The truth is he was not. He was a jerk. <laughs> but it's because of this moment, it started this downhill snowball of his own legacy and his own reputation. This is kind of what became the legacy of Esau. First, we find out these are the bullet points of his life. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. stew. Uh, Esau's wives made life bitter for his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Throughout Israelites' history, Esau's descendants, known as the Edomites, had a less than ideal relationship with their cousins, uh, the Israelites. And it goes all the way through, all the way to the very end of the Old Testament. You see it in the prophets where they're just kind of like not being hospitable to their, to their cousin nation. Um, Esau is a name that's mentioned about 90 times, um, and three times in the New Testament, and almost every single one is negative about him. So it's like throughout history, when you want to talk about someone who made a bad choice, they're like, well, don't be an Esau. Like, let's not make this. It just became synonymous with poor choices and bad legacy. Uh, three times in the New Testament, he's mentioned. Uh, once he's lumped in with his brothers, Jacob, but the other two are just bad references towards him. Listen to this that's said about him. Malachi, the prophet, said this. He said, and he's kind of quoting God. He's kind of, it's, it's a whole other lesson. We won't get into it. But he says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. That's, man, that's harsh. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Dude just wanted a bowl of soup. <laughs> 
and everything tumbled down from there. So we'll all leave a legacy behind. And, and, and it might not seem like it some days, but we always have a choice and we always have the opportunity to point our lives back at God. Um, and so this is the third thing. And I, I wanna bring it back to God's grace because that's always where it needs to go. The third thing that we learn is this. Your position in life doesn't have to define your legacy. It's just starting with the birthright idea. First of all, he started out with the birthright, but then he lost it. Jacob didn't have the birthright, but then he gained it. His position in life changed, therefore changing their entire legacy. As Esau takes the position uh, for firstborn for granted, um, man, like I'm not excusing Jacob for being a cheat in all of this. Like there's a whole world of difference though in Jacob's life because Esau tossed his responsibility of his birthright out the window. He knew what it was about. We might not understand it, but Esau did. And he was like, it's not important to me. Jacob eventually comes back around. He eventually begins to learn what it means to seek God and live out what God intended him to do as the leader of this family line. What if, with the knowledge you have now, what if you could go back and change the legacy that your parents left? Wow, a power that would be. What if you could go back and change some of the decisions that you made? in high school, in college, as a young adult, as a middle-aged adult, the last job you had, the last relationship you had? What if you could jump in a time machine and be like, stop, stop, we don't need to do that. <laughs> Let's not do that. Imagine the difference it would make in your life and the people around you. You might feel like you have an asterisk next to your name already. It's too late. We have this, this really unfortunate habit in our family of labeling people in our family, in our, in our world, of labeling people in our family as the black sheep of the family. And you might talk about it behind their back, but guess what? They know. They know, and it begins part of who you are, and suddenly you're like, I can't change that about myself. I'm just a screw-up. And you might feel that way about yourself, but this is the thing that we learn about God's love and God's grace in the story of Esau. It comes around later, but also, most importantly, in the grander picture of what the Bible tells us. In Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul is talking to the Christians who live in Rome, um, and and he's talking, uh, Paul, Paul should have been totally in on, on the God thing. His virtue of being born as a Jew with really good heritage and a really good kind of pedigree. Um, he uses Esau and Jacob as an analogy for this new covenant that Jesus is establishing with mankind. So he actually talks about, in Romans, not about Jacob and Esau. He said, it's not about being the firstborn anymore. That's not how God's gonna look at us and see us. Legacies are not about positional living and posturing. They're not about being a, 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 a celebrity just because of who you are and where you're born. It's not about being a victim just because of what you came from or what you've done. It's not about positional living. It's about purposeful living. It's about making a choice and saying, this is who I want to be and this is what I want to do. And when you're focused on God, that purpose doesn't even have to come from you. That's kind of what we talked about last week. God establishes a purpose in your life. I give you something to live for. I give you something to be passionate about. Turn to me, walk with me. One of the greatest gifts that Jesus gives us is the ability to rewrite our legacy. Oh my goodness, I, I could probably take this microphone and put it right here and say, okay, does anybody wanna come up and talk about what Jesus has done in your family since you decided to live for him? Maybe it's not you, maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your grandma who every week was like, honey, you wanna get up and go to church with me? Or maybe she's more like, you are going to church with me. It probably was more like that. And then later on, you're like, man, I'm really glad my grandma instilled that stuff in me. When Jesus steps into our lives, it transforms. There are people sitting in this room right now. I'm not going to look at you because I don't want to make it awkward for you, but I know who you are and you know who you are, who your marriage was falling apart. 
But you said, no, for Jesus and because of his grace, we're going to do this together. Or you were lost in an addiction that you just couldn't get up out from underneath. But you're like, you know, I'm going to turn my life to Jesus and he has brought you out of that. Now you're helping other people. You can rewrite your legacy, not by your own power, but by the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. It's what Jesus is all about. And that might seem strange. It actually seems unfair. We look at the world, we're like, you did bad things, you deserve bad things. But then we start taking inventory of our own choices and we're like, wait a second, I take that back. How many good things outdo a bad thing? But that's not how God's grace works. He said, I forgive you, I love you, focus your life on me. You are not stuck with the legacy you have now. It can be rewritten and that's the love of Jesus. In a way, legacy is just another word for birthright. The beautiful thing is that when we turn our lives to Jesus, he makes us born again. And each one of us takes a status with him, a son or a daughter. He's the king of the universe, making us princes and princesses with all the rights thereunto. This is your birthright. My kingdom my love, my grace, and purpose for living. And you can rewrite your family line. And when people look back on your life, they can say, man, you know what? His appetite changed. Her appetite changed. And once they started eating healthy spiritually, everything from then on out changed. Think about your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, the people that are the children of your coworkers whose lives you influenced and that one day, maybe you get to stand before God and they're like, hey, you did a good job doing your best serving me, great. But can I tell you something? I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Jill. Uh, Jill's your great, great, great granddaughter. <laughs> she just wanted to say something. And she says, thank you. Thank you for turning your life around. This is Tommy. Tommy was led to Jesus through somebody that you used to work with and all you did was shine your light in his dark places and the next thing you knew, he was connecting with God and, man, and she was led to Jesus through Tommy and, she, and Tom, they just want to say thank you. That's legacy. That's what matters. And that's the lesson I think we can learn from Esau's life. In Ephesians, in the New Testament, chapter one, verses five through six, the apostle Paul teaches us a lesson that he had to learn himself the hard way. Remember I told you he was born into perfect pedigree. He had like, he had everything lined up. He was a Jewish leader. He was a religious uh, genius. He was uh, someone who actually as a, as a Jew was persecuting Christians because he was so confident in his own faith that he said, man, these Christians are doing it wrong. He's literally dragging them out of their house and executing them or at least overseeing that. Today we would call him a terrorist. But he meets Jesus and it changes his life. And through God's grace, he begins going all around the Mediterranean Sea area and planting churches and writing letters to encourage and empower these people saying, you don't have to do what I did. You don't have to live the way that you were living. Your life can be remade. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter one, verse five through six. He says, he, this is God. He says, God predestined us. That means God already had a plan. God already knew. Don't get scared of the word predestined. That's a beautiful word. God knows the future. He said, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ and daughtership. It's the same thing. He said, in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. Our appetites are going to lie to us and they're gonna drag us into things and we're gonna say, I gotta have what I want when I want it, even to the detriment of me hurting my spiritual life, my soul, my connection with God. But God says, nah, no, 
I, I can make you hungry for something else. And I can bring you into my family as my son and my daughter. And guess which legacy you inherit? Mine. And even with your hurts and your hang-ups and your habits, I bring you in. I give you my love and my grace, and I send you out, and let's make this world a better place. I want to partner with you to put the world back together as you shine my light to the world. Uh, as we wrap up, I want to try an exercise. Um, if you've got a phone uh, uh, that you can take notes on, maybe you've got a piece of paper that you scrap things in. I really do this. Sometimes like I say things like, open your Bible and turn to a page. It's like, no pages are turning. So I think you, either you memorized the Bible or you just thought, I'm not going to try this. I want you to really try this, okay? So uh, you don't have to do it, but get your phone out. or I want you to write down something. This is just for you. No one else is going to see this, okay? Think about this. In 10 years, what do you want your life to look like? What do you want your legacy to be? This is the phrase that I want you to kind of start with, and you can write it out. We're going to have some singing in a minute. We're going to have some prayers, a chance to kind of respond to what's been said. So you don't have to do it right this second. Maybe spin it in your seat, uh, even during the first song, and do this. This is the phrase that I want you to write your letters to yourself. In 10 years, fill in the blank. We're, we're all grown-ups here, big boys and big girls. You don't need a bigger... You don't need a bigger um, assignment than that. But in 10 years, blank, where do you want your life to be? In relationship to God, in relationship to others, in relationship to the world. This isn't financial planning, though that might be part of it. Not that you want to retire rich, but can I give away more than I receive? Those kind of things. Write that down, think about it again. You don't have to do it, but it's an exercise that'd be helpful to you. I recommend that you go home and you write that down and you put it in an envelope and you seal it. And, and, you, and, you, and you put a note on it that when you can open it. You can open it a year from now, six months from now, two years from now. Because you need to be reminded that your appetite can define your legacy, but you are not stuck in the legacy you have now. God can rewrite it for you. Whatever you choose, don't trade your legacy for a bowl of stew. Let's live a life that's worth living. Can I pray for us this morning? God, we love you. And... Uh, I hope we've been challenged this morning. I know I have. It's just so easy to get stuck in the daily grind that we forget that there's more to this world than uh, that. So much more. Lord, we thank you for the lessons from the wild. I pray that we can spend some time outside this week, maybe looking at the ocean or sitting uh, in a hammock or uh, just going for a walk, and we can listen to the birds and the trees blowing in the wind. And Lord, your, your word says that nature declares your glory. May we be people who are listening and may we step into uh, the legacy you've promised us. God, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the ability to move on past our brokenness. Thank you for Esau. Uh, in the end, he still taught us about your love. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.